Our guest says more and more people are publicly discussing their struggles with mental illness and substance use disorder in an open and honest way that would have been hard to imagine a few years ago. He and his colleagues see this is a great opportunity for psychiatry to make a difference. We used to scream from the rooftops about, <laughs> wake up, you know, the mental illness is such an important issue. And, you know, people were like, they would land on deaf ears. Uh, and all of a sudden, the table is completely changed. And yeah. people are, are screaming, you know, we need more help, we need support, we need services, we need this and that. We haven't been prepared to respond to this kind of demand. So this where the, our work cut out for us. For the longest time, it was hard for me to even get out of the house much less to a backside 180. It took me a bit to understand what was going on, but eventually I learned I had anxiety. Joining us is Dr. Petros Lavunas. He's the president of the American Psychiatric Association, which represents over 38,000 physician members who specialize in the diagnosis, treatment, prevention, and research of mental illnesses. We do know that uh, medications for opioid use disorder are safe, are effective, uh, turn people's lives around, and yet they have not been uh, adopted as much by a long, long shot by either primary care physicians, uh, by um, clinicians in general, and by the general public. Uh, still uh, a lot of myths are out there that I don't want to substitute one addiction for another. I don't want mm -hmm. to call medication. And this is Conversations on Healthcare. Well, Dr. Lavunas, uh, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thanks so much for having me on your program. You know, some really disturbing news came from the CDC and some provisional data reporting that more people died from suicide in the United States last year than any other year on record. And now you've spoken out in the past that when people are feeling suicidal, they're doubly adverse to seeking mental health support. Uh, I'm wondering if you could tell us about the APA Foundation's mental health works campaign and what it intends to do? Uh, yes, the, uh, our campaign has uh, one major goal, to open up the conversation. Uh, way in the past, uh, we thought that uh, when you talk about suicide, you may be making things worse. We know that it's not true. The more we talk about these matters, the better off we are. So opening up the conversation, having that first uh, um, uh, openness with with, uh, with a loved one or with uh, anyone whom you trust is just so essential. For the longest time, it was hard for me to even get out of the house, much less do a backside 180. It took me a bit to understand what was going on, but eventually I learned I had anxiety. Of course, seeing a professional, seeing your, your primary care physician, seeing a psychiatrist is a great idea, but the majority of people who have start feeling um, depressed or, or anxious or sometimes even suicidal, uh, they would prefer to talk to someone other than a psychiatrist uh, at first. So this is what the campaign's uh, strength is all about, to uh, not just say there's one and only one path to finding help. Well, Dr. Lavunas, anxiety, of course, is a big contributor to distress uh, that may get people to that state. And the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force uh, has now recommended for the first time, I believe, 
uh, that physicians screen all adult patients under age 65 for symptoms of anxiety. Are you and your members uh, seeing or are you hearing reports of an uptick in referrals uh, coming from primary care and other physician and other healthcare provider practices? Do you think this is going to be helpful? It is going to be helpful. Uh, it is going to be uh, to raise uh, awareness about uh, anxiety uh, disorders, uh, but we have not really seen the effect that you mentioned uh, yet. Maybe too early. Uh, this just uh, happened this uh, summer. So yeah. uh, we, we, we haven't uh, seen the uptick that uh, maybe we will experience in the future. But more than the specific uh, referrals, it's once again uh, in, the, in the spirit of opening up the conversation and making this uh, diagnosis uh, uh, much less uh, fearsome than they used to be. You know, I, I know you're very proud about being uh, elected as the president of the APA. Uh, what an honor. And you've chosen as the theme of your uh, presidential year, confronting addiction from prevention to recovery. You say you don't want to just move the needle on addiction. You want the needle to keep moving. I'm wondering if you could share with our listeners what do you mean by that and how are you making it happen? Yeah. Uh, I don't remember ever having a presidential theme uh, focusing on addiction. So uh, I thought it was time to do so. I'm an addiction psychiatrist uh, myself. It's a, uh, a major uh, issue for our patients, for the general public. So I thought it was time to choose addiction uh, prevention, addiction recovery, addiction treatment as the theme of my presidential year. But this is 12 months. So there is only that much that one can accomplish in 12 months. We have four campaigns that we are unleashing during this uh, 12 months, and we're very proud of them. Vaping, opioids, alcohol, and the technological addictions. Uh, but it is something that needs to get going beyond these 12 months. And um, we already convened a, a group of uh, like-minded organizations at our headquarters in Washington, D.C., and uh, the spirit of this uh, meeting is what can we do to sustain these uh, campaigns, to sustain these efforts beyond these uh, 12 months. And I was so pleasantly surprised by how well aligned we mm -hmm. are. All these uh, organizations from uh, uh, OBGYN, obstetrics gynecology, to internal medicine, to the American Society of Addiction Medicine, and we had real, really very similar uh, goals, very similar tasks. And I do have great hopes that uh, the addiction recovery and the prevention will continue beyond my 12 months of presidency. Wonderful. Well, what you're uh, saying, Dr. Lavuna, certainly resonates with those of us who are in the primary care space, uh, certainly in the nation's community health centers, which is uh, where Mark and I are primarily uh, focused because smoking, vaping, alcohol, and opioids are really what is shortening the lives of our patients and causing tremendous distress. So we are very appreciative you're taking that focus. But I wanted to talk specifically uh, about the vaping uh, for a moment. Uh, a study in the journal Drug and Alcohol Dependence noted that people with mental illness are more likely to use e-cigarettes and to use them more frequently than people without mental illness. That's exactly what I always said about smoking. You know, Before there was such a thing as vaping, that was certainly well known. But many uh, people see vaping as less harmful than cigarette smoking. How are you and APA getting the word out about this as a real concern? Yeah, it is a real concern, exactly like you said. Um, there's that um, 
some myth out there that uh, smoking cigarettes or vaping uh, should be the least of uh, someone someone's problems if they have a mental illness. And that couldn't be uh, farthest from the truth. Uh, as you very well know, the majority of people who live with uh, mental illness will not die of bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or depression or ADHD. They will die from tobacco and from vaping and from alcohol and one of those uh, yeah. disorders. So um, we want to dispel that uh, myth that, uh, hey, you know, if you're already mentally ill, who cares, have a little fun, have your vaping, have your cigarette. This is an absolutely terrible message that people have been uh, perpetuating. Well, that's uh, such an important reminder to, to all of us. Uh, I, I'm wondering if we could switch a little to uh, alcohol use disorder. I, I'm wondering what uh, you can share with us about some of the innovations you're hearing about. Uh, we see a lot of benefits, and I think, Margaret, we, we saw this from maybe the Veterans Affairs working on psychedelic drugs for treating alcohol addiction when combined with psychotherapy. What other interventions uh, are you think are promising uh, in this area? Yeah, the study on uh, psilocybin by my friend Steve Ross uh, is quite uh, revolutionary for our field because here you have a substance that has been uh, uh, viewed for uh, decades, if not more, uh, as a, a major villain and uh, part of, uh, of one of the worst uh, addictions you can think of. Uh, and now it is being uh, studied and shown uh, in a preliminary fashion uh, to be helpful in uh, the treatment of alcohol use disorder. So it is uh, switching uh, positions. Uh, we're not there yet. We haven't uh, crossed all our T's and dotted all our I's in terms of drug-drug interactions, in terms of uh, long-term effects, in terms of pregnancy and so on and so forth. But the preliminary results uh, are quite encouraging uh, in terms of psilocybin for the treatment of alcohol use disorder. Are there um, any large clinical trials going on in that particular area? There, there was the one that was uh, published in 2022, and I do believe that there are more coming up. Uh -huh. uh, the other thing about alcohol that we do need to mention is a shift in the appreciation of uh, outcome studies for alcohol use disorder. Uh, mm -hmm. It used to be that only complete abstinence was uh, something that we would appreciate as a worthwhile outcome of any uh, treatment study for, for alcohol. And uh, in 2023, we very much uh, appreciate and respect uh, decrease in heavy drinking as being another very uh, desirable outcome of uh, alcohol studies. So we have shifted our research focus on alcohol as well. Well, we look forward to learning more about that. It is such a prominent and common problem in our uh, patient population, really in, in the society at large. And one of the groups that we're uh, very concerned about uh, are women and young women. Uh, we're uh, reading that uh, women, females in their teens and early 20s, uh, the data suggesting that they're reporting uh, drinking more, actually getting intoxicated at higher rates than their male peers, something that we maybe had not seen previously. And I'm wondering, as you try and craft uh, messages and policy, is there a targeted public policy approach needed that's specifically designed uh, to reach young women in the way that we've tried to reach other particular populations of focus? Yeah. 
Um, yes, we do. And the point there, which is very well studied, very well researched, uh, uh, very well established, is the concept of telescoping uh, among women. Uh, and that has to do that, although it may not be that there are as many um, women who start drinking heavily as men, once uh, women uh, start uh, drinking heavily, then from the early points of the illness to the most severe form of the illness, uh, the uh, process is very right. quick. Uh, right. And that is of huge concern, of course, uh, to us and also greatly underappreciated uh, because people just uh, uh, read the studies of the, of the major epidemiological studies and they say, hey, you know, this is primarily a men's problem, not a women's problem. And yet, this idea of telescoping is particularly catastrophic for women. Adding to that, the other well-known fact that uh, women tend to uh, drink uh, more um, in uh, private uh, situations, more alone. So the opportunities for red flags to go up are less than with men. Men tend to drink more in public. Uh, and so hopefully there is a friend or somebody who has mm -hmm. seen a catastrophe uh, coming down and they say, well, wait a minute here, maybe there's something that we can do about it. Uh, while uh, women tend to drink more uh, at home and uh, when nobody else is around, um, again, I'm talking about it in general here, yeah. of course, a lot of men and a lot of women who sure. are drinking the other side as well, uh, but that is of great concern to us. You know, I'm really fascinated by the work you're doing as editor of the book, uh, Technological Addiction. And you say the book is really a wake-up call alerting the medical community and society at large to the addictive potential of technology. And you've talked about uh, gaming being addiction as well as cyber sex, social media, texting, email, and online auctions. Um, I'm wondering, uh, do these activities, when do these activities reach the level of addiction and, and what does treatment look like? Um, I've also noted that uh, we're seeing a lot of commercials now uh, focused in on young people who are really being addicted to social media. So uh, I'll, I'll add that in as one of those areas that uh, is this something that the APA is uh, also behind in terms of sponsoring uh, ad advertisement or notifications about this? Yes, yes, we are. And uh, may I have mentioned that we're having four campaigns uh, this year. Uh, and we talked about vaping, uh, uh, opioids, and alcohol, but the fourth one is on the technological addictions. So the vast majority of people do engage with technology in 2023. Uh, I know I do, and I'm sure most of you do as okay. well. And the vast, vast majority of people are not going to have a problem with technology, uh, not with internet gaming, although we may play some games, we may uh, engage in uh, texting, emailing, social media, and so on, but uh, there's a very good chance that uh, we're not going to have any problem with it. Either recreationally or professionally, it is part of life. However, there's a small group of people, maybe 3%, 4%, 5%, who will cross the line and be on the other side. And what we see with these patients uh, is something very similar to what we see with uh, people who live with uh, substance use disorders. Uh, we see tolerance. We see people needing higher, higher amounts of the same activity uh, in order to sustain the same uh, level of excitement. We see withdrawal. We see people abruptly uh, stopping using a, a, an internet game and becoming irritable 
and uh, depressed and anxious and uh, uh, suffering from insomnia, uh, classic symptoms of, uh, of withdrawal. We see people trying to cut down and not being able to, to do so, despite the fact that they recognize that it's not good for them. The classic um, major blocks of uh, the assessment and diagnosis of addiction. Uh, consequences, um, uh, relationships going south, uh, hobbies being ignored, professional responsibilities being uh, put aside, uh, medical consequences. So these are the things that we look for, we look for uh, when we do give the diagnosis of a technological addiction. Uh, internet gaming uh, is being uh, appreciated as a formal medical diagnosis by the International Classification of uh, Diseases and may very, very well be part of uh, the DSM-6 of the American Psychiatric Association. Uh, Let Marcus, me just I, first, I, I just want to maybe follow up one, yeah. Margaret, uh, thinking about uh, We've had Dr. Vivek Murthy on talking about the epidemic. Of, oh, really? <laughs> the epidemic of uh, uh, right. loneliness and isolation. I'm wondering if those numbers are starting to change. You know, in the COVID environment, what are you seeing? Uh, certainly, I think about uh, the social media impact on young people, probably on all of us uh, because of COVID. How is that? Is, is that sort of an inflection point where we have to sort of recalibrate and start thinking about? Uh, the size of the uh, the wave that's coming uh, at us. Yeah, uh, that's how I see that. I see that there's going to be a small number of people who actually may be bigger than three or four percent that I just mentioned before, who actually will meet criteria for a medical condition and will need professional uh, help. Uh, we do know that cognitive behavioral therapy, motivational interviewing, maybe even mindfulness, would be quite helpful for people who do suffer from this medical condition. And then there is the general public. There is the rest of us uh, who engage in social media. And to me, that's a social experiment. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not quite sure how it's going to end up. Uh, I see my 12-year-old niece uh, engaging with uh, social media and having an entire world that is uh, virtual, uh, which I couldn't even fathom uh, of having uh, at her age. Um, will these friendships be at par better, worse um, than the friendships that I had when I was uh, 12 years old? I'm not quite sure. I think that this is something that has to uh, play out and uh, find uh, what uh, we're going to see some, some years uh, down the line. What mm -hmm. we do know is that there are some significant positive effects of engagement with, with technology. Uh, for example, um, Older adults are particularly vulnerable to scams and online shopping and uh, internet uh, uh, engagement with uh, uh, people who may not have uh, their best interest in mind. Um, so my 12-year-old niece I will have much better antibodies against those uh, scammers than perhaps uh, uh, quite uh, a lot of our older adults. I would uh, just add, uh, Mark, as you were saying, Dr. Vivek Murthy, certainly somebody uh, who has deep concern with this issue, uh, and particularly, I'd say, about children younger than 12 uh, who are on social media, who are being exposed to uh, things which are seem intentionally designed to keep them engaged and for periods of time that may 
call out other activities more helpful perhaps for that age group. Maybe we can uh, come back to that if we have a few minutes, but I did uh, want to make sure to uh, uh, give you an opportunity to talk about another of your key areas that you're focused on, and that is opioid addiction, uh, which we have lived through from the, you know, the beginning, through the promotion of the opioid drugs, through the response to the epidemic, and of course, we're still left with the huge loss of life. I think you had a poll that showed that Americans strongly favor improving access to treatment over imposing stricter punishments, legal punishments, uh, to address the problem. Can you share a little bit with us and our listeners about what insights you'll be bringing to this issue during your term? Yeah. When we chose our addiction prevention to recovery campaigns, uh, our guideline was to find areas where we have the biggest gap between mm -hmm. what we are sure about, what we science has pretty definitively uh, uh, concluded on, and what is appreciated by the general public. The greater the gap, the more enthusiastic we are about our campaigns. Opioids uh, is exactly uh, one of those areas. Uh, we do know that uh, medications for opioid use disorder are safe, are effective, uh, turn people's lives around, and yet they have not been uh, adopted as much by a long, long shot by either primary care physicians, uh, by um, clinicians in general, and by the general public. Uh, still uh, a lot of myths are out there that I don't want to substitute one addiction for another. I don't want mm -hmm. to go on medication. Uh, I just uh, want to be clean. I want to detoxify all these things that we have tried and we know that they are not effective, that they are more trouble than good. Uh, and we do have the answer. I mean, we do have, uh, it, it, to me, it's, uh, as an addiction psychiatrist, there are so many uh, substances for which we do not have any medications. Um, you know, for example, I'm thinking about the stimulants, uh, cocaine, crystal methamphetamine. We have wonderful uh, psychosocial interventions. We have wonderful psychotherapies that can address these uh, conditions, but we do not have uh, a medication. And then we do have medications for tobacco use disorder. We have medications for opioid use disorder that work extremely well, and we do not use them. It's such a shame. You know, I want to pull the thread a little on that concept. Uh, we've been engaged in providing school-based uh, health services for about 30 years. In mental health, we've always been saying what we want to have happen is to normalize the use of mental health clinicians, right? But today, we have more and more schools <laughs> calling us up and saying, you've got to come in now, which, you know, we, we used to start with uh, dental and then go to medical and behavioral health was sort of the last the last rail, but now it is really, I think, really to your point, uh, is resonating across the country. People are demanding. That's exactly what we're experiencing as well. You couldn't have put it uh, uh, better. Uh, we used to scream from the rooftops uh, about, <laughs> wake up, you know, the mental illness is such an important issue. And, uh, you know, people were like, they would land on deaf ears. Uh, and all of a sudden, the table is completely changed. And yeah. people are, are screaming, you know, we need more help, we need support, we need services, we need this and this. And we haven't been prepared to respond to this kind of demand. So this we have the, our work cut out for us to figure out how we can respond to this incredible right. demand that we see everywhere around us. Right. 
Well, I'm so glad you uh, raised that point and, and Mark addressed an important way uh, that we create access through school-based health centers, but access to psychiatry, to psychiatrists, to psychiatric uh, nurse practitioners, to therapists, obviously is huge. And if we have time, I'd love to talk with you on your thoughts of what we're doing to train enough people, because certainly in the primary care space, recruiting psychiatrists is one of the most difficult uh, positions. But even with if we were able to address that issue, we have the challenge of the health insurance plans uh, and the restrictions. We, uh, Mark, we had former Congressman Patrick Kennedy on the mm -hmm. show uh, to talk about health plans and how do we hold them accountable to the requirements of the Mental Health Parity uh, and Addiction Equity Act. And I wonder if you might just tell us uh, some of your uh, tools and efforts to ensure that health plans comply with the law uh, for psychiatric mental health treatment, but also substance use disorder treatment. Yeah. Uh, I was on the phone with uh, Patrick Kennedy a couple of days ago, and uh, I was delighted to see how uh, extensive a plan uh, he has to address exactly what, what you're saying. And of course, the APA is more than happy to, uh, to help in, in, in these efforts. Um, I, I would say the APA does quite a few things quite well. But uh, our engagement with policy is probably one of the marquee uh, uh, components of the American Psychiatric Association. So uh, we do partner with other organizations. We do have the group of six, as you probably know, with uh, uh, family medicine and internal medicine, OBGYN, pediatrics, osteopathic medicine, and uh, psychiatry. So we come together. We mentioned that we have 38,000 uh, members, but altogether as a group of six, we have over 300,000 members. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when 300,000 physicians uh, are talking through uh, our representatives, then uh, uh, the heel starts listening. Uh, so we're quite uh, optimistic here that by combining uh, our voices, uh, we will have an impact. Let, let me just get to one last area. It, just again, the breadth of the APA you have a webinar about how generative AI and related technologies may affect mental health and the practice of psychiatry and how to recognize the strengths and, and risk uh, of AI-driven technology. Uh, I'm wondering what your feelings are about AI and uh, any advice that you might want to share. Yeah, I, I'm quite positively predisposed to uh, AI, and I think that uh, there's a lot of promise uh, there. Um, I do a lot of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, with my patients. And what I do is I give them homework, and I give them tables to fill, and I give them Excel sheets so that they can record their feelings and put grades and uh, uh, rate their cravings and all that stuff that are incredibly amenable to AI, to apps, to, to things where people can uh, record uh, their uh, activities and their thoughts and their feelings, uh, as well as uh, uh, follow their, um, their progression through time. What is missing is the intersection with the clinician. Mm -hmm. There are some apps that advertise, you don't need the clinician at all, you can do it all by yourself, and we do not think that this is effective. We do think that uh, uh, you need a human being to be involved in some capacity, and these um, electronic uh, devices can be wonderful adjuncts, but they cannot replace uh, the human being. On the other end of the spectrum, there are some apps that require the clinician to be available 24-7 uh, uh, to the patient, and that is unworkable uh, as well. So somewhere in between from not mm -hmm. needing the clinician at all to having a clinician 24-7 is the sweet spot 
where we're we're striving to to find out exactly how we will um, combine the personal uh, touch of uh, of, a, of a trained therapist with an app. Well, Dr. Lavunas, I want to thank you so much for joining us, and I'm just hoping we can extend an invitation to do it again sometime soon because we have a lot more questions uh, that we'd like to ask and engage with you on. And we also want to remind anyone who's in need of mental health support to call 988. That's the new Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. It can be a huge help to you. And thanks to our audience, as always, for being here. There's more online about conversations on healthcare, including a way to sign up for our email updates, the address, chcradio.com. Dr. Lavunas, thank you for your leadership, for all that you're doing. And we look forward to speaking with you again in the future. Thank you so much. Absolutely. This copyrighted program is produced by Conversations on Healthcare and cannot be reproduced or retransmitted in whole or in part without the express written consent from Community Health Center, Inc. The views expressed by guests are their own and they do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Conversations on Healthcare or its affiliated entities.